0: I'm Hannah.
1: I'm Sheena, and I'm Lori, and this is Cemetery Row. Woohoo. It's not a very woo hoo. I know. I'm We're like I'm yeah. feeling very woo today. I don't want to woo. I don't want to uh-uh. woo y'all. No, it,
2: it, we want to raise hell. Yeah,
1: <laughs> not, it, it is. Uh, just you know, for the record, we are recording on Friday evening, June twenty fourth. Yep. So that will kind of tell you why our mood is the way it is, and why we're so just bleh about been where this country is. Today. Yes, It's been a day, that's for sure.
2: It is, and... We decided early on today after the not long after the news broke that whatever we have planned for next week or well, two weeks from now we're scrapping it, we're um, going to instead tell the stories of women who died from botched abortions. Um it's gonna be probably a, I'm sure a heavy episode, but I think these stories need to be told because um it's like I've said today in sharing Kate McCormick's story, who we covered several months ago you know she she was someone who died from a a botched abortion um and that is our past and right now it's our future um and we we need to you know put some respect on these women's names they tried to make a choice for themselves and life being what it was turned on them and we need to remember them Yeah.
0: And mine's, I mean, one of mine is going to take place in a concentration camp. Yeah.
2: um, And I I, I too wanted to say, I don't want this narrative and all the talking we do to be only talking about women because trans men have mm -hmm. uteruses and non-binary people have uteruses. So I just want to make sure too, that I'm not just saying, well, it's a women's issue. It's it affects anyone who has a uterus and right. that includes right. a lot of other people and, who identify in different ways. Yeah.
0: And absolutely. And you know, another one of my, cause I'm already told the girls, I'm going to take a page from their playbook and do two stories <laughs> on our next <laughs> episode is we can't forget that women of color have been sterilized against yes. their will and that what's happening right now is white supremacy. It's because it is, 100%. white people aren't having babies. Because you can't spend a generation telling people don't have kids if you can't afford them and then they can't afford them. So they don't have kids yeah. and then you get all hurt. Um, and, and,
2: yeah. and this ruling today is going to directly affect and kill disabled women or women with you ut- or people with uteruses. Yeah. It's going to hurt people of color, black women, um, indigenous women, uh, Latinas, um, yep. and Poor women and and yeah. people with uteruses. So this is if you're a white rich woman, this is not going to be a problem for you. Can we be real? Right. Um, This is really a problem for everyone else who is not a rich white person with a uterus. So we need to stand up and stand out and get loud and get annoying. And we will. uh, We're going to try to channel our energy into next week's episode. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um. So yeah, just know that that's coming. We are. We're going to rage out and we're going to keep raging out because you know, I saw someone say it's not a uh, hot girl summer, it's rat girl summer. And I'm like, yeah, mm-hmm. yes, let's burn it all down. It yeah. is now. <laughs> yeah. It is
0: now. And um, I'm extremely fortunate to like live in a place where yes. um, Illinois actually has laws on the books. Not just, it's not just not criminalized here, but it abortion is protected under state law here. Yeah. Um, and it's incredibly fortunate. And so, you know, I think about, you know, the the case that started all this horse shit was from Mississippi where I fled from and where you two poor babies are still. And I think about all of my, my niece is still in Mississippi and she hit puberty. And so I'm like, I'll risk going to jail if something happens with her and she requires the service. They can fucking put me in prison all day long. I don't give a shit.
2: Exactly. You know? So, yeah, and um, I mentioned earlier, Kate McCormick, um, she is a young woman. She was 21 years old living in Memphis. Well, I think maybe just outside of Memphis and in the 1850s, um, her tombstone reads that she was seduced by a father, her father's friend. I take that to mean rape, but I really it don't a know.
0: statutory rape situation. Mm-hmm. I mean,
2: I just, I don't, I just don't like seduced either way. She wound up pregnant, unmarried in the 1850s. Of course, that is a, uh, that's awful. So she went to get an abortion and long story short, it was botched and she died and basically no one claimed her body and her grave was unmarked for over a hundred years until, uh, some benefactors at the time did pay for her burial, and then a volunteer at Elmwood Cemetery in Memphis did um, pay for her to have a monument. And her monument tells her story, and we tell that story in depth in our uh, monuments with that list a cause of death episode from november of last year so if you want to know more about her and we will give her probably another shout out next week but um that episode does cover her i just want to put some respect on her name because she shouldn't have died that way no um and 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 we shouldn't she should have just lived out a regular old life and died at 95 or something you know not at 21 exactly um so anyway yeah, and then to do some same shameless self-promotion, because I'm sick and twisted, <laughs> um, I'm giving a true crime tour in July at Elmwood Cemetery, but it is not a tour. We will not be walking around in the heat in July. We are not crazy people. It's an <laughs> indoors presentation. It is July 22nd, which is a Friday evening, so it's after work. So come on down and hang out with me. It will be lots of fun. And I'm hoping I survive tomorrow's tour, which is outdoors mostly, and it will be hundred degrees. So y'all pray um, for me. Yes. Hopefully I will not be the newest on resident tomorrow. <laughs> no, sure. Let's hope not. Let's hope not. Anyway. Uh, so last time we covered pride and Yay. guess what? We're back at it because we just can't get enough of our LGBTQ plus friends and family. Yes, absolutely. So- uh we are talking about
1: gay hollywood this week bah, 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 bah. <laughs> kick us off lou who okay so here we go when you think about women from the golden era of hollywood there are so many names that come to mind clara Bow, Katherine hepburn joan crawford lucille ball but what about the name dorothy arzner While feminist film history nerds may know of her work, I myself had never heard of her until I began doing a Google dive into the topic for this week. And surprisingly, she has connections to all of those women I just mentioned. Yeah. So Dorothy was born on January January 7th. January 3rd, 1897 in San Francisco, but she spent the majority of her childhood in Los Angeles where her father Lewis ran a cafe popular with silent era film stars like Mary Pickford and Douglas Fairbanks. Ooh. So she wasn't really interested in a Hollywood career at first. She grew up around these celebrities. It didn't really phase her. Uh, she graduated high school and enrolled at the university of California where she spent two years studying medicine with the end goal to become a doctor. Oh, wow. Awesome. Yeah. So she spent a summer working in a local doctor's office and she realized medicine was not for her because like me who wanted to be a vet, but realized I could not handle not being able to save every animal. Mm. Dorothy did not like the fact that she could not heal patients instantly, which yeah. is like the yeah. simplest of things. Um, in a 1974 interview she did with Karen Kay and Gerald Peary. She said, quote, I wanted to be like Jesus, heal the sick and raise the dead instantly
0: <laughs> without Aww. pills,
1: surgery, In quote, Oh, the, the,
0: gifted kid if I'm not immediately
1: perfect at it. Right. Yeah. She's like, if I can't if I can't do it, if I can't, you know, kiss your boo-boo and make it better, I don't want to do it. Yeah. Which Love it. Good, good for her. Um so at this point, she wasn't really sure what she wanted to do with her life. Um this was around 1918, which <laughs> As I'm sure you ladies know, there was a little uh, Spanish flu pandemic going on. Mm -hmm. Um, So there were a lot of people that had died. Um, A lot of people were were not working. And the movie studios in California were desperate for people to come work. And she was given the opportunity to meet with William DeMille, who was the older brother of the notorious director Cecil B. DeMille and a well-known filmmaker in his own right she was given the opportunity to kind of observe the different departments. um, And his secretary had kind of asked her, you know, what do you think about doing? And um, the suggestion was, well, you know, I really want to be in the script writing department, because that's, you know, you learn everything about the story that's being filmed when you write out the script. Um, And when she went back and met with DeMille, he asked her, you know, where do you want to work? And or where do you think you belong? And she said, I need to start at the bottom. And he said, well, what's, what's the bottom? And she said, script, script typing. And so he's like, okay, that's where you're going to go. And she went home and it was several weeks before she heard back from them. Uh, and she was hired as a typist for $15 a week, Not which, bad. which is about $250 in today's money. Okay. And she began her career with the famous Players Lasky Corporation, which would go on to become Paramount Studios. I'm not sure if you've heard of them or not. <laughs> <laughs> Within six months, she was promoted to editor for the Paramount subs- subsidiary. Blah, 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 blah. The subsidiary- <laughs> how do you say this fucking word subsidiary there you go there you (laughs) go thank you hannah you're welcome (laughs) real art studio where she edited a whopping 52 films woo that's a lot Ah, yeah By 1922, she got her first taste of directing, sort of. She was editing the Rudolph Valentino film, Blood and Sand, and saved the company thousands of dollars by shooting a bullfighting scene and cutting it with stock footage. Hmm. Smart lady. Right. Smart. She was uncredited for directing this film for for the the work she did, but she went on to become the right arm of director James Cruz who hired her to write the shooting scripts and edit several of his films. Hmm. Um, These jobs were not cutting it for Dorothy. She had gotten a taste for directing. She would not stop until she got what she wanted. So in 1927, she was given the opportunity to direct a film with Columbia. So she finished out her contract with Paramount and she was like, okay, I'm done. I'm going over to Columbia, uh, she had spent seven years of her life with, with Paramount and she didn't want to leave before saying goodbye to quote someone important. Ooh. So she decided to pay a visit to BP Schulberg, who was the production head of Paramount, but he was also someone Dorothy had helped out years before when he was short on funds for a film.
0: Mm. He
1: edited that film and said, just pay me what you can. And he did. But his secretary, he was in a meeting and his secretary would not allow her to see him. Oh, jeez! Would not allow her to wait for him. What? So rude. She walked out to her car and was about to get in. And she's like, you know what? Fuck it. I'm going to go find somebody. <laughs> uh, she spotted Walter Wagner, who was the head of Paramount's New York office. She stopped him and told him, you know, it's been seven years. I'm leaving Paramount, but someone important needs to know before I'm out the door. He then took her to his office, where she reiterated, "I'm leaving. I've gotten the opportunity to direct with Columbia. I'm gone." Within five minutes, Schulberg was in the office negotiating with Dorothy. She refused to share that she was leaving for Columbia because she's like, "Y'all are gonna fuck it up for me." So no, right. I'm not telling you. I'm not telling you where I'm going. I'm uh, just going. yeah, Schulberg tried to convince her to stay by promising, oh, well, you know, you keep editing for us. We'll get you a directing opportunity. And she's like, no, now or never. Mm -hmm. And he said, okay, we'll give you a film of your own. And she responded, quote, not unless I can be on a set in two weeks with an A picture. I'd rather do a picture for a small company and have my own way than a B picture for Paramount. Yes. I love Hardball. She did not play two weeks later she was on set shooting fashions for women an adaptation of a french play called the best dressed woman in paris the film was a success (laughs) the film was a success and dorothy was contracted for three more silent films with paramount in 1929 she became the first director for paramount to take a crack at directing a talking picture The Wild Party, which starred silent film queen Clara Bow. While filming, Dorothy became frustrated with the sound, and Clara was super awkward because she wasn't used to having to act with these microphones Mm -hmm. set up around her to where they could be heard. So essentially, Dorothy created the first boom mic. Oh, Oh, awesome. Nice. She had a... um, one of the dudes on set tie or attached the mic to the end of a fishing rod. And they just followed Clara around the set.
2: I love so it. So that, yeah, that's awesome.
1: <clears throat> so, and the film was a massive success. So following the success of that film, The Wild Party, she directed a few more for Paramount before she left to work as, as a freelancer. In 1933, she cast Katherine Hepburn in one of her first roles in the film, Christopher Strong, which told the story of a female pilot named Cynthia Darrington, <laughs> who begins an affair with a married man. When the man's wife learns of the infidelity, she forgives Cynthia and the women come to an understanding. So this was just one of the many instances of Dorothy kind of turning that conception of women and the traditional roles of women on its head. Yeah. You know, instead of fighting right. over this man the wife, uh, of Christopher Strong, you know, meets with her, confronts her, of course, but they talk. And it's, it's, again, it's filmed from the perspective of a woman, just like when you see, um, Justice League, how sexualized Wonder Woman is and how her outfit is. But then when you see Patty Jenkins, Wonder Woman, how her costume is different. It's You you don't get the same vibe. It it. was
0: like with Harley Quinn and Suicide Squad versus Harley Quinn and Birds of Prey. I mean, Mm -hmm. you can tell one was a dude, the other was a woman.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, it's it's shocking that we're still dealing with that today. Amazing. In 1940, she shot what is arguably her most famous film, Dance Girl Dance, which tells the story of two showgirl best friends, played by Lucille Ball in what I'm pretty sure was her first film role. Oh, cool. And Maureen O'Hara, who fall in love with the same man. Oh, Uh -oh. dear. So I'm not someone who can really get the deep meanings of films. In college, I struggled through topics in film studies to write papers on the different themes and commentary of classic films. I just like movies. Don't make me think too hard. (laughs) But people who do excel at that kind of stuff praise the film for basically flipping the script and returning the male gaze from a woman's perspective, as you mm-hmm. know we just kind of discussed. In fact, most of Dorothy's films were presented in a way to establish a more independent view of women. And so the best example of that was in 1936 when she did the film Craig's Wife, which was based on a Pulitzer Prize winning play of the same name. The film starred Rosalind Russell as a Harriet Craig, a housewife obsessed with appearances, possessions, who couldn't get her mind off of this house has to be immaculate. Everything has Mm -hmm. to be perfect. And by the end of the the story, her whole her housekeepers have abandoned her. Her husband has left her and she's alone. Now the original play kind of sided with the husband and viewed, uh, this character is being cold and distant and, you know, a frigid mm-hmm. bitch, if you will. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dorothy's iteration leaned into what Harriet was feeling and turned the story into a, quote, plea for women to become their own people rather than possessions, end quote. Heck Good yeah. For her. The film received an Oscar nomination for Best Picture and Rosalind Russell received a nomination for Best Actress. Nice. Wow. So her career did not go on much longer. Uh, She retired from filmmaking following 1943's First Comes Courage, and she never said what led her to quit, but there are several theories out there to why she did. One theory was that she was disappointed after her later films performed poorly at the box office, but what most likely led to her... To disappear from the industry is the anti-gay and sexist requirements set forth by the Hays Code. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You see, while she never publicly commented on her sexuality, she lived pretty openly as a lesbian. She dressed very smartly in men's attire um, and had open relationships with women. She had been linked romantically with Ala Nazimova and Billy Burke, uh, who was Glinda the Good Witch in The Wizard mm-hmm. of Oz for our BBs in the, in the audience. <laughs> and there was also speculation that she did have affairs with Joan Crawford and Katherine Hepburn. Whether or not those took place is irrelevant. The love of her life was Marion Morgan, a choreographer, 16 years senior. They were together for 40 years and that Aww. only, their relationship only ended when Marion passed away in 1971.
2: Aww, no. So,
1: so yes, that's, that's, um, and Marion actually did some of the choreography on dance girl dance. So, cool. and, and I'll share a picture of the two of them together, um, yeah. in, in our socials. So even after she retired from featurely length filmmaking, Dorothy did continue to work. She directed training films for the women's army corps during world <laughs> war II, And she founded filmmaking classes at the Pasadena playhouse. Cool. In 19, yeah, in 1952, she became the head of the cinema and television department at the College of the Arts of the Playhouse. (laughs) And in the latter half of the decade, she became the entertainment and publicity consultant for Pepsi. Oh, wow.
2: Which, yeah, owned
1: by Joan Crawford, well, not owned by
2: Joan Crawford, but yeah, yeah.
1: Filming commercials featuring her close friend and the wife of Pepsi's owner, Joan Crawford yep um and there's way more
0: money in filming commercials oh Oh, yeah yeah in
1: 1961 she began teaching advanced cinema classes at the ucla school of theater film and television where she taught francis ford coppola before retiring in 1965 oh wow okay she was there bitch got around she was there for four years and she taught arguably one of the most famous well-respected directors in in history period um so following marion's death in 1971 dorothy moved out to the desert of la quinta california and died on october 1st 1979 at the age of 81 Hmm. couldn't really find a cause of death she was 81 years old right um, right. and had been in the hospital so um And what, from what limited information I could find, a memorial service was held at the Chapel of the Desert in Coachella. Hmm. She was cremated and her ashes scattered in an unknown location. So unfortunately, no memorial for Dorothy.
0: Hmm.
1: Um, Following her death, she was recognized with a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, which is the only award she ever received. Oh, wow. In March of 2018, Paramount dedicated its dressing room building to her. Ooh, uh. which that's a thing. Okay. Yeah. yeah, And for years, there's been talk about a biopic about her life that was supposedly going to star Julianne Moore. Haven't seen anything else. It's just like back, uh, in like 2012, uh, i read, found something that mentioned that they had been trying to get a movie movie done for, for quite some time. Man. So it's mind boggling to me that she has gone forgotten in most film circles, um, especially in a time now where women filmmakers and actresses are fighting for equal pay in the industry um, and equal recognition and just, you know, everything that Dorothy faced in the 1920s.
0: Well, think about because Catherine Bigelow was the first woman to win an Oscar for Mm -hmm. best director. And that was not that long ago that was
1: 2000s it was in the 2000s it's right only then in the last 20 years and it's it's just so ridiculous that Dorothy essentially broke the glass ceiling almost a hundred years ago by becoming the first female member of the Directors Guild of America the first woman if not the first person to direct a film with sound um her legacy as a filmmaker and LGBTQ Icon should not be allowed to be forgotten. There should be a movie about her. Yeah. Um, you know, especially as we're coming to terms with the, you know, everything that's going on in that industry with yeah. um, women not having equal pay, not really having any respect. Um, you know, I think one of the articles I read said like Catherine Bigelow's been around for a long time. She's only directed eight films, right? Um, or, or right around there. Dorothy, I think, was 20 in a very short career like I think yeah
2: they turned um, movies out so quickly back right, then,
1: right right and the number of films she edited she did amazing amazing things and you know I th- there are some people that are, are starting to remember her mm-hmm. unfortunately a lot of her early work there are no you can't view those films today um so yeah it's 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 sad that she's kind of gone, forgot, gotten forgotten when she was such a legend, not only for women in Hollywood, but you know, a lesbian who didn't try yeah. to hide. I mean, it, it was just kind of like, hey, yeah, she's she's with Marion. She yeah. you know she dresses in a masculine fashion. Um, you know, she doesn't. It, it it's amazing that she was able to live as herself and it right, wasn't right. something you know today everybody's so fucking obsessed with who's you know who's sleeping with who in Hollywood yep. absolutely it was it wasn't a big deal and you know just yeah really cool yeah that is yeah cool. she's an awesome lady
0: mm-hmm. yeah so yeah that is it for Miss Dorothy right. and Good speaking job, of who? who was sleeping with
2: who <laughs> oh lord let's, let's get, get in. into it
0: okay um with guest host Rosie, who will not leave me alone. Ma'am, <laughs> stop it. Which, Lori, you missed it. Uh, Jack was on my lap earlier. Oh. And um, Sheena got a look at his butthole, so that was nice. Oh,
2: yes. <laughs> you know how cats are. That's yes, their sign of affection.
0: I him, want you to see it. Look at it. I know. It. <laughs> I told him we don't show hole for free in this house. He's got to get it together. <laughs> All right. Times are dark. But some of the greatest shining lights when things are bleak are the hoes. (laughs) We all know I love a hoe. Go listen to our episode where I talk about Mae West. (laughs) And Scotty Bowers, the male madam of Hollywood's golden age, was a hoe for all time. Scotty was born George Albert Bowers. I do not know how you get Scotty from George (laughs) Albert.
2: I don't even know what Scotty is a nickname for he mentioned it in the book didn't he? Did he like this is yeah like this is how I got it may have been in the movie I can't remember because I, okay. I watched and listened to them back to back but he mentioned how he got it but okay it's irrelevant to your story yeah. go ahead yeah he's he was born
0: uh in Ottawa Illinois which is a suburb of Chicago um, at the time it was just farmland but it's a suburb now On July 1st, 1923, so he has a birthday coming up in like exactly a week, so happy early birthday in heaven, Mr. Bowers. (laughs) He sold newspapers on the streets of Chicago to help feed his family. It was during this time that Scotty would be molested by a local clergy member Uh, or two or several Mm -hmm. and be given money in exchange. Now, later in his life, he would kind of, his view on this wasn't that he was the victim of childhood molestation. He kind of viewed that as the beginning of his career in sex work. So, Mm -hmm. you know, that's not for me to tell somebody else how to process their trauma. So that's that. (laughs) As the drums of war started, he joined the Marines and fought the Pacific theater, including the battle of Iwo Jima. He lost two friends and his brother to World War II. No. After the war, like many a Marine, he found himself in San Diego and decided to make the trip, okay, Rosie, up to LA and work in his friend's gas station. Old school gas stations were not the automated affair they are today, so he got plenty of interaction with the public. And one such member of the public was actor Walter Pigeon. <laughs> so, Mr. Pigeon had been in a couple of movies, um, more than a couple old school ones, I none I'd ever seen, but apparently he was a big to-do. After spending an afternoon skinny dipping and boinking with Pigeon and a celebrity (laughs) hat maker, because why not, Bowers discovered his next business venture. A bisexual icon, Scotty offered himself up for the ladies and the gents of Hollywood who were bound by strict morality clauses during the height of the studio's heyday. He worked out of the service station for a number of years, resulting in the title of his 2012 memoir, Full Service. <laughs> <laughs> Cheeky. And it wasn't just himself, Scotty offered up. Whatever your taste, Scotty could find a willing participant for you. Apparently, the creepzoid Errol Flynn liked him
2: young. Yeah, he's disgusting. I hope he's rotting in hell. He's he a horrible,
1: horrible human horrible. being.
0: Horrible. Fuck Errol Flynn. Yep. And unlike a predatory street pimp, Scotty viewed himself simply as a procurer and never took a cut of anyone's earnings. So if the people that he found for whomever uh, paid the person, Scotty was like, that's between y'all. I just got you together. So he was, you know, people would call him like the pimp of Hollywood, but you know he wasn't getting paid he was just he liked people fucking so he was like (laughs) go forth and fuck basically he bartended for parties after leaving the service station and was a general bon vivant in the hollywood scene full service is an exhaustive and explicit view into (laughs) scotty's export yes i'm yes, not is. going to go into a whole bunch of detail hollywood crime scene which i know i've referenced before has a wonderful um episode on scotty bowers and they do go into the details
2: just read the
1: book
0: read the book full just service read the is book. A great read i did the audiobook version of it it was too. a blast it's so much fun um, and then, like I said, the Hollywood crime scene version, which is basically pretty much based off the book as well. Um, but they, they do talk about some of the other, so it was just, it was a lot. It's a yeah, lot. It's a lot. Warning. There is a description. God damn it. Rosie. <laughs>
1: <laughs> there is a
0: description of spegma as being like Rockfort cheese. And it took me a day or two to recover from it. Cause I fucking love blue cheese and I was so upset.
2: Ew. I was so upset. It is so gross in the book.
0: Oh, my teeth were on edge the whole time. I was just like, oh, yeah. And I'm not, I'm no lightweight. Like I have read the Gray Spud letter. I have looked at Richard Chase's crime scene photos. Like I am, I am hard to shake, but I was just like, oh, kill me.
2: And, you know, but I think that's sort of the good slash bad thing about Scotty Bowers is he just puts it to you the way it is oh yeah he's very candid and very frank and some of it does not feel necessarily like dirty or nasty he's just being like yeah we did xyz and they had blah 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 blah," and what and it's just but i mean if you don't know anything about that oh trust me you get a lesson in it yeah (laughs) i bet you do oh yes (laughs) so who all did scotty fuck everyone who did i think
0: the better question is who Who did (laughs) did (laughs) scotty fuck (laughs) <laughs> according to full service, here's an mm-hmm. abbreviated list: the aforementioned Walter Pigeon, mm-hmm. Cary Grant, mm-hmm. Vincent Price by icon, mm-hmm. yep, Betty Davis, mm-hmm. Charles Lawton, who according to Scotty was into scat play, Spencer Tracy and Catherine Hepburn apparently at the sp-
1: same time. I wish no, no. <laughs> apparently they were
2: not into each other whatsoever.
0: Spencer bitched about katherine all the time
2: everyone sure. did according all to that book i was like y'all lay off her she sounds kind of rad like i really can't would like be her best from- friends yes i know yeah. she's very outspoken and very blunt and i was like i don't know she didn't take that for crap. her yeah yep. my favorite katherine
0: hepburn was barbara walters was interviewing her and asked her if she would ever wear a skirt and Catherine goes to your funeral.
2: <laughs> awesome. I
0: remember uh, that. Uh-huh. <laughs> yes. Cole Porter, Vivian Lee, who was apparently the best sex Scotty had ever had.
1: Well, wasn't she uh, a nympho? Di- or like She had some
0: with- issues. Yeah, she had oh, some yeah. mental issues. And I think... Um, I really do think she probably had bipolar, which can have
2: some hypersexual. Based um, on what he said about her in the book. Yes. And not just her, but also her husband. Right. Olivier. Like he would. I'm telling your story for you, Hannah. No, it's okay. Go ahead. But I just thought it was interesting how he would, you would have a, a quote unquote straight couple, but he would service both of them and then get them. You know, he would get the husband, some girls, he would get the wife, some guys. And then with like gay people, of course, he would obviously yeah. set them up with someone of the same sex. He but did I just that with liked...
0: Charles Lawton and his wife too, yeah. where he was with Charles Lawton and then his wife who's um, Esther or something like El- that. He...
2: El- El- Elsa Lancaster. She was yeah. the bride of Frankenstein. She's amazing.
0: Yeah. So I love he, her. and then uh, also maybe Wallace Simpson and, uh, Prince Edward.
2: Yeah. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm.
0: Um, And also maybe even J Edgar Hoover.
2: Oh yeah. (laughs) Love it.
0: Love it. Okay. Sounds amusing. I hear you say, but was any of it true? Well, according to Gore Vidal and Dominic motherfucking Dunn. (laughs) Yeah. I trust Dominic Dunn to the ends of the earth. (laughs) Um, would he or he still alive I would follow him into battle so <laughs> I trust him implicitly uh, the filmmaker Matt tyranner who created the 2008 documentary on Scotty also verified many of his accounts Scotty would call the setup of a pool house the layout of a hallway and Tara would be able to find the corro- corroborating evidence a longtime friend of Scotty said and guys I love this quote Scotty doesn't lie about anything. He's a poor kid from a farm in Illinois. And when he got here, his two assets were his big penis and charming personality. <laughs> That's what he used to feed his family. Yeah. It I, sure was. I love that for him.
1: Yep. I just mm-hmm. love
0: that for him. Bowers also understood the importance of discretion in that era. The morality clauses, lavender marriages, and other nonsense the studios put its queer performers through meant that they had to remain deep in the closet or else lose their livelihoods. And in many places, being gay was still fully illegal. Even now, it can be difficult to be gay in the entertainment industry. Mm -hmm. Scotty even memorized phone numbers so there would never be a paper trail. It didn't mean he stayed completely out of trouble. One cop memorized Bowers' car registration plate and would pull him over, scare him a little bit, and then start undoing his pants while complaining about his miserable marriage. <laughs> Bowers later wrote, I hope he found happiness.
2: Yeah, sure. When asked
0: why he decided in his 80s to spill the beans about his truly epic sex life, he said, I don't need the money. I finally said yes, because I'm not getting any younger and all of my famous tricks are dead by now. The truth can't hurt them anymore. About his free freewheeling days and the paramours who couldn't be themselves, Scotty said people should do what pleases them and the other person. Some people just please more than a few. <laughs> scotty died in his los angeles home in 2019 at the age of 96 <laughs> get it scotty of kidney failure he is interred at the los angeles national cemetery a veteran's cemetery because he was indeed a veteran mm-hmm, yep. his marker reads you were so loved by all and always will be oh cheers to scotty bowers may we all hoe well into our 90s <laughs> yeah <laughs>
2: yeah I have to say I had never heard of him and then Hannah was like oh have you ever heard of Scotty Bowers? so I was like no so like I immediately <laughs> go watch the documentary <laughs> and I turn around and read the book and oh, it's exhausting it's like oh <laughs> it's a lot. my god it is it's a just, lot it, there's just so much so much it's just so physical there's he, the man never stopped <laughs>
0: And apparently, like, okay. like when people were kind of casting aspersions on, you know, whether or not everything he said or did was true. Apparently a Los Angeles Times reviewers called him Forrest Hump. Oh, wow. Because <laughs> you know how Forrest Gump in the movie is like in every single important iconic moment. And yeah. So they called Scott Forrest Hump. <laughs> oh, like-
2: man.
1: Oh, That's- he would find that
2: hysterical. He would love that. He would absolutely mm-hmm. love that. He does seem like, um, I mean, I've never, and maybe he did have troubles and worries in his life, but he also, it struck me just how easygoing, carefree yeah. he was. And, you know, just, he was down for everything, literally. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, just, he was just, so like, I was just like, yeah, okay, cool.
0: Let's do it. We're doing this shit. Okay. We fucking, thats is <laughs> fine. Oh, there's poo-poo.
2: Okay, cool.
0: Yeah. You know,
2: <laughs> I, mean. yeah. I mean, he kind of cared about that. He was kind of like, ew. But, you know, he right. also was like not going to shame the guy for it. So. Right.
0: He didn't judge. He was just like, okay, cool. Well, yeah. you know, let's yeah. do the thing.
2: Yeah. Good job, Spider Monkey. Yeah. Yay. So my guy I found through Scotty Bowers. and how many <laughs> other people can say that that oh, I found my dude through Scotty Bowers. Um, I'm sure a lot of people, a can lot of say people. That. Say that. <laughs> um, but yeah, he wrote about him in his book and I'd never heard of him and I looked him up and I'm like my god this guy's beautiful so (laughs) I literally uh, also
0: Scotty Bowers was a hottie patati. oh yeah oh yeah he was a little cutie Mm -hmm. pie
2: total hottie and my dude is super hot so I'm like yeah if I'm going to spend hours researching someone I want to look at someone pretty um so picture it Mexico, 1913, a young teenage boy and his family flee the country amidst, amidst the Mexican revolution with just $10 to their name. Little do they know that little boy would grow up to be a huge movie star with millions of fans all over the, the world. Ladies swooning over him everywhere until his life was violently taken from him. Mm, so it's going to be a bit of a bummer, sorry. I just realized that. We shouldn't have ended with me. <laughs> Jose Ramon Gil Semen I hope I'm saying I'm not saying that right, y'all. I can't speak Spanish. I'm so sorry. I listened to it and I tried to get it right. Either way, known professionally as Ramon Navarro, was born on February 6, 1899 in Durango City, Mexico, uh to Dr. Mariano Semeni <laughs> and his wife lenore uh so his dad was a dentist and um basically his family was really a they were hot shots in mexico like they were wealthy uh members of his family held um many prominent positions like in uh politics and things like that and, and his dad was a dentist so like you know like they were well loved well respected family members um, or a very well-respected family. And they lived in an estate called the Garden of Eden. And you know, you're rich when you live yeah. in an estate and it is, it has a name. Like, you know, I, I'd like to ca- call my house something, but, uh, it wouldn't be that nice. Anyway. So the couple had 13 children. Jesus. Ouch. One was, oh, yeah. was still born, but oh. and, uh, Ramon was the fourth, um, but anyway, when the Mexican Revolution began, uh, like I said, it was in about nineteen thirteen, so Ramon was just becoming a teenager, the family uh, said goodbye to Mexico and they moved to Los Angeles. And they came I mean, they came with very little because they they had to flee. Um, but they made it work. And we're going to talk later on about um how his family found success here in America, but either way, um they were obviously being from mexico they were really devout catholics and that's something we're going to talk about a little bit later on and some of his family members like his cousins dolores del rio and andrea palmer palma were already successful actresses so in los angeles in 1917 so ramon is about 18 he begins to pursue an acting career Um, Like I said, he is a hottie McCotterson. He is super, super hot. He is beautiful. He is fine. Um, And (laughs) so he is auditioning and trying to land some parts. And while he's doing that, he is, of course, having some other jobs, like he's a dancer, a taxi driver, a singing waiter, which sounds like the best and worst job ever. I I don't know how to take that. Like part of me is like, I want to go to a place with singing waiters. And the other part of me is like, God, no, never secondhand embarrassment would kill me. Yeah. Like, (laughs) no, thank you. Um, but he befriended an actor and director named Rex Ingram and his wife Alice Terry. She was also an actress, and they did what they could to help him find success. And they suggested that he changed his last name to Navarro. So he became Ramon Navarro, which just, you know, kind of rolls off the tongue and it's Ramon Navarro.
1: Yeah, it mm-hmm. just
2: sounds good, you know? It's hot. It's a hot it name. Is. It is a hot name. And he scored his first major role. He had a couple of little ones here and there, but he scored his first major role as Andre Louis Moreau in the 1923 silent movie, Scaramouche. Like, like, uh, you know, Bohemian Rhapsody. Yeah. (laughs) Which I love. I'm like, that is so cool. I'm seeing it in my head now. Aren't we all? (laughs) And then he scored the biggest role of his career in 1925, as the title character in Ben-Hur oh so there was a Ben-Hur you know way later Mm -hmm. but this was the silent version and everyone fell in love with him because he had some revealing costume I bet he did and there he was being you know the big title guy and being super hot so everyone was like swoon and <laughs> so he was uh really being promoted by the studios as this latin lover and um his main competition was actor rudolph valentino who by the way we share a birthday just not the same year but the same day also uh, gay as hell <laughs> and he was the biggest sex symbol of the day but he died at the age of 31 in 1926 and Unfortunately, that's a good thing for Ramon because he basically took his place as this Latin lover. Because Hollywood
0: can only have one.
2: Apparently, (laughs) yes. (laughs) Um, So he scored lots of romantic leading roles and a lot of swashbuckling roles. He starred in a ton of movies with the biggest actresses of the day like norma Shearer and joan crawford i hate that we keep bringing her <laughs> there up. she
0: goes again joan was just betty, in everybody's
2: business betty forever no i'm mm-hmm. kidding
0: anyway um like i said in the chat those two should have just scissored it out <laughs>
2: <laughs> you know joan would have probably been down for that betty not so much but um but he, and i think a lot of their um feud was studio created right i like to I believe don't, there
0: was some sexual tension going on there <laughs> yeah
2: i don't know that they i mean i I know they didn't like each other but i don't think it was as bad as people make it out to be anyway that's another tension <laughs> for another day ramon thanks to his beautiful singing voice um made a seamless transition into talkies love it and so he made some of his biggest films during the well, I was going to say talky era. I guess we never <laughs> left the talkie era. I mean, I don't know. Um, one of his biggest movies was Mata Hari with Greta Garbo in 1931, which I watched. And he's beautiful in it. it I don't know that's the best movie I've ever seen, but I was <laughs> entertained. And her costumes are amazing. Um, and then he starred with Myrna Loy in The Barbarian in 1933. So all of this sounds very exciting. And he's... Well, apparently,
0: like, the talkies did ruin um, for, like, Clara Bow was so Mm -hmm. great in the silent film, but she had, like, a really big accent, and it just didn't translate into the talkies. And so, like, a lot of the silent film era just couldn't make that leap into the talkies. They just didn't have the voice for it.
2: That's some of my favorite stuff from Singing in the Rain, where they're trying to teach what's-her-face, how to talk for talkies. Right. And I can't stand him. It's oh I love those scenes that crack <laughs> me up. I love singing in the rain. Anyway. So the twenties and thirties were really Ramon's most successful years. He was making about a hundred thousand dollars per film. That's about one point seven million today.
1: Yeah, not bad. And- Good. yeah and he made
2: lots of movies per year like we were saying earlier Lori, with your story yeah, um they were turnaround. just cranking them out um mm-hmm. he usually made about three or four and this was from about 1924 to about 1935 and while um he was a successful actor and and a lot of people enjoyed going to the movies to see him mgm declined to renew his contract when it expired in 1935 But he continued to act, um, mostly a lot of small roles in American movies, and he did make a couple of international films. In the 1950s, he continued to work in television, and he tried to make it onto Broadway, but that failed. Mm. And while uh, his career was at its peak, Ramon invested in real estate. Um, He actually bought a home designed by Lloyd Wright, the son of Frank Lloyd Wright. Oh, Um, So he was able to maintain a very good life for himself even though his career waned so he enjoyed having his money and he spent it very very well which is a nice thing to hear in hollywood you don't always right hear that. um he did live alone because he never married he as you probably already guessed because we are you know in a gay hollywood episode he was gay <laughs> certified um, bachelor yes exactly and I mean, y'all, oh god, he's so pretty. Anyway, but he struggled <laughs> with his sexual orientation due to that Catholic upbringing. That really he just really struggled with that, and I really wish he wouldn't have. I wish he just could have been himself, you know. Yeah. Anyway, or, anyway. Um, so later in life, he actually started drinking really really heavily, and a lot of people think this was because he was having that internal struggle of I'm a gay man, but I'm a Catholic and and just it got it's to him. Not uncommon. Exactly. And um, unfortunately, in the years leading up to his death, he had been arrested several times for DUIs. Mm. Um, but he seemed to live his life with, you know, a couple of different guys. He was never really that um I mean, he was kind of out, but not like, you know, in the in the newspapers out. He dated um Hollywood journalist Robert Howe. He dated um uh, composer Harry Parch. Um, so he had a couple of different boyfriends here and there. And of course, Hollywood had, as you mentioned, Hannah, those lavender mm-hmm. marriages where they would basically force a gay actor or actress into a, a marriage strictly for the publicity, just to show, oh, look, they're gay. I mean, they're, like they're with, not gay, they're straight.
0: With <laughs> Rob <Rock laughs> Hudson and the secretary. Yes, yep. exactly. Yeah.
2: And he never went for that. He was like, nope. Um, I'm just gonna stay who I am and stay, quote unquote, single, right? Um, and he did use sex workers. This is how I found out about him was because um, Scotty Bauer serviced him and you know helped him get tricks. Um, and unfortunately, two underhanded, crappy sex workers betrayed him in 1968, and I could go into some serious detail here about who ended Ramon's life and and the gross details of his death. I don't really want to. I want to and focus they, on um, Ramon.
0: Hollywood Crime Scene has a very good episode about them and they, they were really sex workers as they no. were two brothers who were trying to make some money and then fucked up in the most just egregiously awful way possible.
2: They're just trash. I'm yes, sorry. Absolutely. A hundred percent. And trash does not equal sex worker. Like you can be a sex worker. No, and, and that's be the golden. thing is, but these two people had, are trash.
0: Right. Yeah, they had not really worked as sex workers. They just found this opportunity and they're like, we're going to roll this guy. Basically. basically.
2: Just fucked up. Um, yeah, so I don't want to go into their life. Like, Hollywood crime scene does a great great job on that. They go into major detail in their life. I just, I don't find them interesting. I just find them trash. So we're just right. only going to talk about what they did to him in terms of how they killed him. But I, I really want to focus on Ramon. Anyway, um, so these brothers, Paul and Tom Ferguson, they were 22 and 17 mm-hmm. at the time. I mean, children being trash anyway um they basically wanted money and they were willing to be like oh hey let's hook up for sex and then steal from whoever it was they were hooking up with or just robbing people um you know god forbid they get a a job or anything like that anyway monsters i'm telling you they heard that ramon kept a ton of money in his home which i mean makes sense he's a wealthy you know former huge you know screen star um, so they got his phone number from another sex worker, and they gave him a call and said, "Hey, we'll come up and we'll have sex." Now, I let me say this too: I do not think any of this is Scotty Bowers related. No. I don't want it to sound like any of Scotty's tricks turned these kids onto Ramon. I do yeah, not think that this was the was case. A, a free this was lapse. way later. Yeah, this was way yeah. later. Yeah. So anyway. So they go to Ramon's house on October 30th, 1968. So this is right before Halloween. Mm -hmm. And like I said, they had originally said, we're going to come there. We're going to have sex, blah, blah, blah. But basically they tied him up and they tortured him for hours to get him to reveal where his money was. He did not have any money hidden in his house. I don't know where they got that from, but they beat him. And cut him and did a lot of really terrible things to him. And Ramon died of asphyxiation because he choked on his own blood after the beating. And he was just sixty-nine. He was still a you know, relatively young man. Well, it's that belief I think that people
0: always think that I mean, it happened with the clutter family from, yeah. in cold blood of like they think that well-off people are keeping cash in their
2: house and i'm like that's not how that works yeah um, exactly i mean there are people who did that but for one it, not in it's the not 60s,
0: as you know
2: probably not and i mean some people did because they didn't really trust banks like that right that 28 especially people who crash,
0: survived the yeah yeah
2: that they messed them up but two a lot of people hit it really well to where you're not gonna find it Mm -hmm. right i mean i don't care what you do you will not find it anyway they left ramon's house so they killed this man this you know silent and talky you know movie star beautiful good looking guy for twenty dollars that's what they got out of this which just ticks me off
0: that's i mean no price is worth it but twenty dollars twenty dollars yeah
2: yeah and when they found his body the next day they And like I said, Hollywood crime scene does a a really good episode on him and they go into detail about how bad the scene was. It was very, very bloody and they really just destroyed his house. And either way, we're going to talk very quickly about what happened to them because I want to get back to Ramon. So they were caught. um, They went to trial. They were sentenced to life, but they got released on parole in the mid 1970s. Mm. Of course they did. This murder happened in 1968. So, yes, of course they did. I think they, they probably just didn't. killed a gay guy. Whatever. Exactly. I think because the defense really um, was just so ugly about Ramon being a gay man. They, do, they sex tried workers. to make him out
0: to be like a pervert.
2: Right. And it's like, no, he's a grown man doing his own thing. It's no one else's business. But of course they did that. And then they also said in this, oh, this blew all over me. Mm-hmm. Ramon was drunk at the time of his passing because he did have an, he was an alcoholic. Right. They said he could have pre- prevented his own death if he was sober because he could have just moved his head and not choked oh, his own blood. Oh,
0: my fucking God. And I'm like, uh,
2: <laughs> wherever y'all are, I hope you're suffering right now. Because no, that, no. Yeah. Anyway, um, of course, they were let out. But because they were both trash, they were arrested over and over again for other crimes. And they garbage served longer. Garbage. Yeah. They sent. They served longer sentences for those crimes than the sentences they served for murdering paul navarro i meant ramon navarro and paul ferguson finally admitted in 1998 that yes they did murder ramon uh he died in 2018 in jail while serving a 60 year sentence for rape goodbye trash Jesus fucking yes. christ tom ferguson completed suicide in 2005 goodbye trash bye yes. felicia Anyway, Ramon Navarro is buried at Calvary Cemetery in Los Angeles. He has a really lovely marker that reads beloved brother with a cross. And Mm. a lot of members of his family are buried um, at that cemetery in this big family plot. And a lot of them do have that very, their markers all look very similar. Almost all of them have a cross. Um, And let me just say, he, like I said, his family was so prominent in Mexico and they just, Even though they came to America with very little, they went and they just succeeded. Like, they were all so talented at their different things. Immigrants get the job done. They sure do, don't they? So, Ramon was this huge actor. Uh, Three of his sisters became nuns. His brother, Antonio, was an actor, and he directed one film. And his brother, Eduardo, was an architect in Los Angeles for 50 years. Man. man like this whole family just success story like i love it good for them. anyway yeah. he does have and i love a nun I do, too. <laughs> I, do too. I do too i'm like you know what and
1: three, three of them in the same family. three of them
2: yeah and i'm like heck yeah have at it so um he does have a star on the hollywood walk of fame which is really cool um it's on hollywood boulevard and his life and death have been portrayed in the media over the years since his passing charles bukowski uh i did say that right yeah wrote a short story about his life his murder was briefly referenced in an episode of the sopranos um there have been books and plays based on him or that discuss him um but one of my favorites and y'all know i gotta be a little dramatic um (laughs) i found this today and i'm like this is my new obsession is this song so in 1975 peggy lee recorded a song called tango and it's written by jerry lieber and mike Stoller. and trust me you know everything they've ever written they wrote hound dog jailhouse rock santa claus is back in town like a ton of stuff for elvis But then also a ton of hits for everyone else, like Love Potion Number 9, Stand By Me. Oh, wow. Um, On Broadway, I Who Have Nothing, I Keep Forgetting. Like, you know, like the amount of songs these guys have written is astounding. But they wrote this song about Ramon Navarro and his passing. It is so weird and haunting. And some of it is spoken words. Some of it is sung. It is just really fascinating. And I loved it. I, I know I'm a weird, dramatic person, but I loved it. So I put him- a clip in <laughs> i don't know if he can but it'd be cool if he could i'm gonna read some of the lyrics because i just was like this is just it's beautiful but it's so sad so let me get dramatic okay so as your eye travels down and finally rests upon the real victim lying quite still in a silk dressing gown lying quite still at the edge of the carpet one flung one arm flung out for the peacocks to peck Blending in well with the blue and green background, except for the bright scarlet sash round the neck. Oof. He was a collector of beautiful strangers, and life was a party right up to the end. The door always open to love and love's dangers, though dead, a lover, a stranger, a friend. Oh. The phonograph playing an old broken record, a tango, and over and over it plays, over it plays. It is oh. so. Good. It is so like haunting. That. Mm, man, yeah. And y'all know I got to end with a quote. <laughs> <I> love <it. laughs> So, in the last several years of his life, Ramon was working on his autobiography in which he planned to quote tell everything. <gasps> Ooh. He initially wanted it published after his death, but then he said quote, Then I worried that if the book waited until after I was dead, no one would remember me. Aww. So, Ramon Navarro, you are not forgotten. And we send all the love your way, good sir. Yes, um, go check out his movies. He made a ton of them, and I rented Matahari from Amazon. It was like three bucks, and three bucks well spent. I enjoyed it.
0: Cool, so awesome!
2: Yeah, go yeah. Lo- go look him up and just enjoy the beauty that is that man. He is gorgeous. Mm-hmm. All right, ladies.
1: Well, that was a good
0: one. I like yeah. that. Yeah, because yep. I had um, I knew about him, like I said, from Hollywood crime scene. And then, of course, you know, Scotty's been in yeah. everybody <laughs> yeah. um, or everybody's been in him.
2: Yeah, exactly. <laughs>
0: so, no, those are all great. I love that. And I love Joan Crawford showed up in like all of. That. <laughs> know.
2: Yeah, of course. When doesn't she show up? I'm telling you.
1: All right. So thank you for listening, Luhu. Yes. Where can they find us? We are on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Cemetery Row Pod. Or you can send us an email to Pod at gmail.com.
2: Heck yes. yeah. Write us some do. good reviews um, mm-hmm. and tell us, tell us that you love us. And yes, um, only please. good reviews. <laughs> yes. We are um, telling us. <laughs>
0: We're too fragile for criticism right <laughs> Listen, now. Listen, times are hard. Definitely. Okay? If you
2: send us some kind words, that would go very far. Yes, right? Okay. Can I just be real? Like, geez, it'd be nice to hear. Good job. Oh yes. Anyway, keep it
1: up, girls. Keep it yeah. up.
2: So thanks to the guys who help us with this podcast, as in our producer, Derek Russell, and our musician friend, Revenge Body, yeah. uh, who will have new music coming out this year. And stay tuned for next week. It's going to be a little bit of a downer, but we're going to raise these women's names up and celebrate them. Yep. So thanks for tuning in. Bye. Bye. Bye.